Uh, when Amy says that that is a short meeting, we're talking real short, like 10 minutes, uh, really. So it's a, a for real short, not church short, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, my name's Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Uh, normally, we, we uh, take time to pray corporately together, and we're going we're gonna to kick that down, down the road just a little bit when all our kids are back, uh, and you'll see why, um, why that is. Um, you can open your Bible to Acts chapter 9 as we continue on in our series in the book of Acts. Uh, yesterday, um, we had a service project at Owen Middle School, and a bunch of folks showed up. Thank you to everybody who came. Um, you know, as I, Amy texted me at the end and was saying, hey, if somebody's free, can they just take a weed whacker uh, down this row in the parking lot uh, in the middle school? So I said, sure, I can do that. I'll do that. Um, I hate weed whacking. Just... I hate it. Always. I always have. I don't know why. I don't know. I just do. Um, and I was walking over there with this weed whacker. And, um, and I was just praying for the school, praying for the students. My daughter is an eighth grader there. And, um, and uh, you know, I think I was just like, why am I doing this? <laughs> um, almost certainly none of these middle schools are going to care that I'm weed whacking these tall, ugly weeds in the middle of their parking lot. They probably never even noticed. Probably all the parents that are going to drive back, um, they're not going to notice. They're not going to see what I've done. Um, you probably wouldn't if you drove there to this morning, even after I told you that I did something. Why am I doing this? Um, and I, we talked, my family talked about this later together. Why did we do this? Um, and, uh, you know, part of it is just to be kind to one of, one of my kids. I can't remember who said, I think it was Allie, said, we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Yes, um, that's very true. And, um, but the heart of it is because Jesus came and served us. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus came and, and laid aside all of his power and, and majesty to come and serve us, to wash our feet. And so we follow him in that. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. And as I was yesterday, you know, carrying this weed whacker that I didn't want to carry to do things that I didn't want to do, thinking about all the people who would not notice, um, I, I was struck by how this is exactly the way that God often works. That God does things for us, has served us and blessed us. And the vast majority of the time, the vast majority of us are walking right past and not seeing anything. And that doesn't mean that what he's done is not true. It's in the superfluousness of his generosity. And that moment after moment, occasionally some of us, some of us sometimes more, sometimes less, recognize, look what God has done for us. And we get to participate in that. We get to participate in that kind of generosity, the generosity of God. And uh, I just want to thank all of you who came yesterday to participate in that. And uh, I saw what you did, and I'm grateful. And uh, someday, maybe a person or two will also recognize what you've done. I know Josh Wells, uh, who works there, sees when our church comes up and serves. Uh, and if it's just him that sees, then it's worth it. Because that 
is how generous God is, that he would be so superfluous in his giving that only one person might see the extravagance of his love. Thank you for participating in that. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on the way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... He said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples of Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, not, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall lowering him in a basket. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning that by the power of your word, you would make the songs that we just sang more true, that our hearts would be able to more freely and honestly confess that we love you. And I ask, God, that our own eyes would be open and our own hearts would be unveiled, that we might see you standing here before us. God, we pray that our ears would be attuned to this, your word, and that we would respond with affection and devotion as our hearts are stirred to love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.
You know, I, uh, I grew up in evangelical churches um, of, of different stripes and flavors and varieties, but all kind of broadly in the evangelical category. Um, and, you know, today that word evangelical, I, I'm not quite sure what it means anymore to who I'm talking to and when. Because um, the evangelicals I see on TV or read about in articles, I, I'm like, that's not me. I don't know what that is. I don't know what's going on there. But historically, um, evangelicals have these markers. And evangelicalism is bigger than this church or our denomination or, or our cultural moment. It's bigger than our country and older than our country. And this morning, we're talking about one of the kind of defining features of evangelical focus. So evangelicals historically in this country and elsewhere have really emphasized the centrality of the scriptures and emphasized the authority there. Evangelicals uh, emphasize the need to see the cross, to see the work of the cross for each person, and emphasize the need for Christians to be engaged in the world and hoping to transform society. Evangelicals believe these things, and there's this fourth thing that's kind of central to what it means to be part of this tribe that I think I'm still part of, which is conversionism. And this belief is that every single person ought to have a confrontation with Jesus and ought to personally be converted, that they might follow him. And Paul's story here, it says Saul, uh, his name gets changed very soon to Paul. Uh, his conversion story is kind of like the emblematic conversion story. So that now even uh, people who aren't Christians will talk about a Damascus Road experience. And they're referencing this story, even if they don't know they're referencing this story, which definitely happens. Paul is here on his way to Damascus to try to snuff out and hopefully destroy this burgeoning church. He has the authority to do so from Jerusalem. And as he's on the way to carry out these threats that Luke says he's breathing out, these murderous threats against the people, Jesus interrupts him on the road. It's not a vision of Jesus. It's not a dream. It's Jesus, the ascended Lord, who appears to Paul on the road and knocks him on his butt. Flannery O'Connor says, uh, God seemed to look at somebody like Saul and said, if, it was going, if he's going to be converted, it would seem necessary to knock him off his horse. There's no horse, but that's kind of the principle here. He gets knocked to the ground so that Jesus himself can confront him and say, why are you persecuting me? And Saul does not recognize Jesus, but recognizes that whoever this is, is the Lord. And Jesus discloses his identity. It's me who you're coming after. And the strange thing is that other people can hear the, the voice, hear the noise, but they cannot see what he sees. And so they lead him like a baby into the city, and immediately he has to be in, ingrained into Christian community that he was just trying to destroy. 
the antidote to his physical blindness that results in this bright light that he's seen, only is found in the hands of another Christian. And so he must wait for Ananias to come. And Ananias is like, I've heard of this guy. Is there, you said that he dreamed of an Ananias laying hands on him. Is there another Ananias, perhaps, in Damascus that might do this? And Jesus says to him, no, it's you. You're the Ananias. You go to him. Lay hands on him. I have use of him. And Saul is transformed. His eyes are opened. And he gathers his strength, and not just physically, but he gathers his strength spiritually. And we're set off kind of on the road with Paul. He'll pop out of the narrative for a little bit, which is strange, but he'll pop back in. And what is happening here in Luke's narrative in the book of Acts is that we're, we're, we're slowly breaking categories, checking boxes of what God can and will do to spread the fame of Jesus. And it's happened in a series of conversion stories with people in Samaria, with the Ethiopian eunuch. It's happening here with Saul, the angry Jewish leader. And all these categories of people are, are themselves succumbing to the proclamation of Jesus' lordship in a variety of different ways. And we're going to see another one soon coming to, to kind of break the ultimate box. Luke is about to blow your minds with what's about to happen so that you can understand and kind of get on board with what God intends to do, not to in, just in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. And here Saul, this murderous person, is converted to following Jesus who he probably understood as as his chief enemy. Now, conversion is is kind of a a tricky topic in our culture, our place, in our time. There are, are many people in our place and time that would just flatly say telling people they need to convert is wrong. And especially if you are doing what Luke says that you ought to do, what Jesus says you ought to do, which is to go elsewhere and tell other people far from you that they ought to convert as well. That is wrong. It's wrong of you to sort of uh, imperially move in and say your way of thinking is not the way that ought to be. It's wrong to tell people that, especially about their central convictions about God and the nature of life. Now, if you move outside of the conversation of religion, conversion is basically what everybody is involved in all the time. Evangelism has never been more popular. It's just that people are largely evangelizing for everything except this. People have often appointed themselves as evangelists for political ideologies, for justice issues, for brands of things that they recently bought or hope to buy. And in all of those other areas of life, it is an accepted mode of being that you and I should obviously be seeking to convert people to our way of thinking. But in this particular arena, that seems inappropriate, or so we're told. 
But at the heart of the Christian insistence, the evangelical insistence that conversion is necessary is this kind of experience. Now hear me. I do not have a Damascus Road experience. I've never seen a great light like this. I've never experienced temporary blindness that resulted in scales falling off my eyes. It's never happened to me. I don't have a quiet, invisible, spiritual version of it either. I grew up in church, and I don't have any experience of suddenly understanding who Jesus was. I don't have any memory of my life where Jesus wasn't real to me and growing, uh, and me growing in my awareness and understanding of who he is. And that, that, for many of you, some of you, that's probably your story as well. But at the heart of our understanding is, even for people like me, is that you have to have this kind of moment where you personally are confronted with the objective reality of what we are saying about Jesus. That following Jesus, uh, being a Christian, being a church person is not a matter of going up to the spiritual buffet and saying, well, this particular flavor is my personal preference. That is not the understanding that Luke has. That's not the understanding that, that Paul will have as he writes after this. It's not apparently the perspective he has in Damascus after he's converted. It is not the way that Christians have thought about what we say and what we teach ever. We are not saying that to us, Jesus seems to be the most preferable way that you should go about and be human in the world. What we are in fact saying is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth. That when, when Saul addresses him as Lord, as that's not a religious term, that's in fact a kind of political term, is he the king? Is he the Lord of heaven and earth? And the Christian conviction is that the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus is, in fact, the rightful ruler of heaven and earth. And that is objectively true. And you must deal with that in the context of your own personal life. Because what that Lord is coming to do is to make you answer the question, what are you doing with me? Personal conversion is not some sort of layer that we add on top of something. It's not an accessory that we add into our life. What we are insisting is this is a fundamental nature and feature of reality. And have you properly reckoned with it? And it is only in that context that Paul's story makes sense. And Luke is, is trying to get you to understand the radical whip around that Saul is experiencing and how unexpected it is. Saul literally has a direction of travel, Damascus, and he has a direction of travel of life. And he will complete his physical journey to Damascus, but every other way, his life takes an unbelievable U-turn. It is a spin on a dime at that moment, that forever and radically changes him. This can only happen 
because he has confronted something real and true. And it is Jesus himself. Fundamentally, the idea of conversion has everything to do with the blindness and the seeing that Luke puts on display. There's a kind of ironic inversion that's happening within the text. That before, when Paul could see with his eyes, he was actually blind. And that once he can spiritually see, he could still rightly see even though he could see nothing. And the people who could see with their eyeballs but did not see what he saw, they were actually the blind ones as they led him into Damascus. Conversion is about an unveiling and a removal of blindness so that you might really and truly see the nature of Jesus, of God himself. Now, there there are some things about this that are, in many ways, unsettling. Because every story doesn't look like this. Not Not just in Acts, but in every human story ever. Why not this thing all the time? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why my story looks like a little kid with the the lights of seeing just sort of faded up and into full brightness as I age. For, For some of you, I don't know why your story looks like wandering around in the darkness, in the wilderness for years and years before a radical moment where you fully see. I don't know. I don't know. And that is kind of at the heart of what we confess about these kinds of moments as a people. And you could hear it in the psalm that we read in Psalm 3. That fundamentally, salvation belongs to our God. That nothing about this moment is is about Saul's own proficiency or the proficiency of somebody who's told him things. It's not like somebody like Philip from previous chapters has rumbled into this moment and and offered for him an irrefutable chain of argumentation that has said, finally Saul's like, oh, now I get it. Before I did not understand, now you have helped me and I understand. That person does not exist in this story. What Acts chapter 9 helps us see what we might otherwise be distracted by is the raw truth that God alone is the one who is the author and the finisher of salvation. That he does not make conversion a a kind of partner effort. In this moment, Jesus interrupts Saul's life. And it is in that moment that blindness is gone. And when you hear that about Paul, when you hear the way that he is interrupted and converted, and you go and later read how he talks about how people are moved into a place of faith, you just hear miraculous language dripping all over it. He'll say in Ephesians 2, 
We are people who are born in spiritual poverty and death by nature, children of wrath, opposed to God. And there is a kind of miracle. And he says, salvation then is only and entirely a gift. That's it and that's all. That's all that it can be. When he's writing the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, he says that God transfers people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's it. There's no hand-holding. There's no journeying. It's just God transfers people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And our instinctive kind of reaction to, to Paul's story, to those texts, is to say, but why would God do this? But when and with who and how he does it? And that's not the point. The point is salvation belongs to our God. And the promise of God all the way through the entirety of scripture is that God will make for himself a people, the promise delivered over and over and over again. I will be your God, you will be my people. And what he is doing here is the fulfillment of that promise, grabbing Saul by his shirt collar and saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Saul can do no other. He is thrown to the ground and he is completely won over in one miraculous moment. Salvation belongs to our God. Now, what is important to see in the unlikelihood of Saul's conversion is something that we have to carry in to our own kind of life that God has called us to on mission with him. You can see that nobody in the Christian camp wants Saul on their team. On the list of people that they want, he is not it. He is their enemy. And you need to contextualize that and hear that in the key of your own life. And to be honest about what that really means. Who are the people, who is the person that you are repulsed by? Who you find repugnant? Who you want as much distance from as quickly as possible? That is the kind of person that Jesus loves. And for you, that may happen in a variety of different ways. It, it might be that uh, you don't, homeless people smell bad and you just don't want to be around them. It may be that that person over there has, has crushed your reputation unjustly. It may be that that kind of person in that kind of political camp, their fierce ideology is polar opposite of yours, and you don't want to be around them. This person is socially unacceptable, can't read any social cues, is just a jerk to you all the time. Those kinds of people, your enemies, those are the kinds of people that Jesus also comes for. The truth about yourself that you must acknowledge is you were probably on the list for somebody as well. 
That you are the kind of person that somebody else was like, I don't want anything to do with. Maybe you're just really good at faking it and being socially acceptable. So you're like, there's no chance. It's not possible. Let's just pretend that somebody actually could penetrate your hypocritical shield. And if they could really see who you were, they wouldn't want you either. Even you. And this is what happens. You and I have to be open to and receptive of people becoming brothers and sisters. Will Willimon, a famous preacher, said, Like Ananias, contemporary disciples must be ready to be surprised by God's transformation of our enemies into our brothers and sisters. For the church knows not who may be the recipient of the inscrutable choices of God. Is there a category of people or a person that you are completely unwilling to open the possibility that they, your enemy, might become your brother or your sister? Because this is what Luke wants us to see. That God makes orphans in his family. He makes enemies into our family. He makes the abandoned acceptable. He makes the unlovely the objects of his love. And you and I were recipients of God's extravagant, superfluous mercy and grace. Have no business writing off anyone at all. And here, we may not have the formula for every person that we love that does not currently follow Jesus. I I don't, this is not the ordinary experience of most people, seeing a bright light falling to the ground. But what we have to, to leave open and leave unbounded is that if salvation belongs to our God, there is no place that he cannot go and save people. There is no kind of people who are beyond his grasp and too deeply alienated from his mercy. And it's important, if you are here in this this place or you're listening to this online, for you to hear that God's voice comes yet still for you. You may be a church person who has come to church hundreds of times in your life. And you may be like Paul's companions. Where you've heard the words, but you could not see. And I I want to speak to you just for a moment. You may have felt out of place in church and even deeply ashamed because it seemed that everyone was seeing something that you could not yet see. And can I just tell you, whoever you are, that God has always seen right exactly where you are. And he has loved you every moment that you could not yet see him. And you may have felt like you missed it. That you missed your chance. It's too many times that you have heard and not seen. 
And I'm just telling you that this is the God of the Damascus Road that will wait on you and wait on you and wait on you until the precise moment when it is best that he knocks you on your butt and you can finally see. You may have lost hope. You may have been weighted down by shame. But before you stands Jesus. And salvation belongs to our God. To you, he would say, I will be your God. And you will be my people. This is the promise of God for his people now and always. And you must be confronted with Jesus. That is the same truth that we all must hear in this place. Wherever we are in relation to God, you must see Jesus. You must be confronted with him. And you must deal with the reality of his kingship. And you must rest. That though you might be an enemy, and though you might play the part of an enemy again, again, and again, the Lord of our salvation is so gracious and kind that he would seek to be with you. You must confront him and be confronted by him so that you might receive the full promises of God and you might be shown what it is that God would do with someone like you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of heaven and earth. There is no one else. We treat you like you're the option that we've chosen. We treat, we treat you as an accessory of our lives. But you are the central defining feature of our lives. And Lord, we, we acknowledge that we have walked past you. We've walked around you. We have acted in direct opposition to you. And we are so grateful that you are the God who has no one on his list who is too difficult for him. That all of us were born into sin, into death. And it is your great mercy and grace alone that can rip us all out of the grave. And Father, I pray for uh, all of us this morning, I pray that we would have this kind of confrontation with you. That we would have our eyes unveiled, have our eyes opened. We would see you for who you truly are and we would respond appropriately and accordingly. God, I pray for folks in here whose eyes have been closed for a long time. Who have, who have maybe been around, maybe have heard of, and maybe have heard a lot of truth and good things. But for, for the first time, they are seeing you for who you really are in your majesty and your glory. And God, I pray that they would this morning not wait, but instead surrender and give themselves over to you.
And Father, I pray for all of us who have had that vision of you, who have seen you, who understand you, who are one of your people, who have been baptized into your name, God. And we have still somehow drifted from this thing and treated this reality as kind of an optional spiritual taste test. God, I pray where our hearts have grown cold, we have forgotten what it means that we have been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the marvelous light. God, I pray that our hearts would be reawakened into that truth. We would embrace it and celebrate it and worship you with renewed fervor. God, I pray for everyone who can hear my voice right now and everyone in this valley who is not yet seen a clear vision of you. You are the Lord of salvation. Salvation belongs to you. I don't know when it works or how it works, but Jesus, I pray that you would come and do a miracle to bring dead people to life. I pray for all the people right now who have somebody in mind whose heart is broken for a child who has wandered away. Family members who have lived their lives separated from you. Neighbors and friends who are toiling away in a life that is is as if you didn't exist. I pray, God, for all of those people that feel too far off. Father, I pray that you would bring them home and do a miracle. And help your people who are brokenhearted to look to you again in renewed trust and hope that you will fulfill your promises in that person or that one. God, we're so grateful that you've come and interrupted our lives, that you are with your people and for your people. You are worthy of worship and adoration Help our hearts to be overflowing with love that we might give you what you deserve and join with you and your great work scooping in those who we thought were impossible to incorporate. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we're so grateful for your great love for us that is first and best and is our great hope and